And that's the third quality, patience. So um, when was the last time you took an IQ exam? Not, not an intelligence quotient exam, but an impatience quotient exam. Have you ever taken one? Well, let's take one, okay? So um, using the rating scale on the screen, record next to each statement, or at least the, the, the uh, record on a paper the, the statements that I'm going to read, the number that best describes the frequency with which the statement is true. So I'm going to read 20 statements. If the statement I read is never or hardly ever true of you, you get five points. If it is seldom true, you get four points. Sometimes true, three points. Frequently true, you get two points. Always or almost always true, you only get one point. Okay? Everybody ready? <laughs> Number one. When another motorist cuts me off as I'm driving my automobile, I become so annoyed that I say something critical, unkind, or nasty to or about that motorist. How often is that true of you? Never, hardly ever, seldom, sometimes, frequently, always or almost always. Number two, when I fail to perform according to my expectations, I put myself down in thought or in word. When I fail to perform according to my expectations, I put myself down, either in thought or in word. When I want to leave for an appointment on time and others by their procrastination hinder me from doing so, I become restless and fuss at those who are slowing me down. How often? Number four. When I'm trying to be serious and others seem to be more interested in kidding around or goofing off, I become miffed and withdraw myself from their company. When someone on whom I've been waiting for 20 or 30 minutes shows up late and doesn't apologize, I take it personally and assume that he or she doesn't think that I'm important. Number six, when I make a conscientious effort to do my best and still am criticized for my efforts, I wonder what the use is in trying or I think about quitting and giving up. When someone hurts or offends me, I write that person off having little or no desire for reconciliation. When someone makes fun of me, I respond as though he had done something much more serious, like punching me in the nose or stabbing me in the arm. When someone makes fun of me, I respond as though he had done something much more serious, like punching me in the nose or stabbing me in the arm. In other words, I overreact. I feel a pinprick like somebody is you know, hurting me much more intently than really is. Number nine, when I suggest something to someone and my suggestion is either ignored or ridiculed, I cease from making suggestions to that person in the future. Think about your spouse. Number ten, 
when people don't treat me with the respect and honor that I believe I deserve, my desire to communicate with them and minister to them is diminished. 11. When people expect more of me than I am realistically capable of doing, I become exasperated, aggravated, or resentful. When others are ungrateful for the things that I've done for them, I think about no longer doing those things for which they've been ungrateful. 13. When I'm working against a deadline and realize that I might not be able to meet it, I become irritable and grouchy towards those who are around me or I blame them for my inability to meet the deadline. 15. When someone tries to convince me that something is wrong, which I know is not wrong according to the Bible, I struggle with feelings of contempt for the person. When someone with whom I'm acquainted does not change as quickly as I think he or she should, I automatically assume that that individual is not really trying to change. 17. When I dearly want something, I am tempted to employ sinful means in order to obtain my desire, rather than waiting for the Lord to provide it in His time. When others don't meet my expectations, I withdraw from them, or pout, or sulk, rather than express to them what my expectations are. I'm not going to tell them. Well, listen to me anyway. Number 19. When facing trials and tribulations, I'm more concerned that God shorten my suffering than that He strengthen my character. And the last statement. When God does not execute His judgment on the unrepentant as quickly as I think He should, it really troubles me and I question his justice. All right, so go ahead and tally up your score. Sure. When God doesn't execute his judgment on the unrepentant as quickly as I think he should, it really troubles me and I question his justice. Now, are we going to get to fill these up for our wives or our spouses? Well, you can talk about them at home. But you need to get the beam out of your own eye first that you can see clearly get the splinter out of your neighbor's eye. When I fail to perform according to my expectations, I put myself down in word or deed. You said the second one? Okay, go ahead and tally up your points and I'll give you a basic idea of how, <laughs> how intently you need to pay attention to what follows.
No, there's only a possible of 100, so, you know, it's going to be on. <laughs> okay, so here's the uh, non-scientific rating scale. If you score between 94 and 100, that's an excellent score. Uh, you have no problem with impatience. You have a problem with dishonesty. <laughs> if you scored between 84 and 93, that's still a very good score. You're probably a pretty patient person. If you scored between 74 and 83, you could probably use some more patience. 64 and 73, you probably are somewhat impatient. And if you scored 63 or below, you probably should plan on getting a copy of this recording <laughs> and listen to it again and again until you can get your scores up a little bit higher. All right. So I'm counseling someone, and he or she says to me, right off the bat, well, you know, I tried it God's way and it didn't work. Now, as a counselor, as a biblical counselor, when someone tells me that, I know something's not right. Because if you try it God's way, sooner or later it should work. Really? I'll ask, what did you do? Oh, well, I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay, that's good. What else should you do? I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Well, I thought you said you did it God's way. I did. I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Well, okay, that's great, but how about H, I, J, K, element of B? Huh? Yeah, H, I, J, K, L, that's God's way too. Here, let me show you. And invariably, what happens is the, the H, I, J, K, element of P that they didn't do is they didn't put on the biblical alternative to what they're trying to put off. You know, generically, they tried to stop being proud without putting on humility. They tried to st stop being uh, gentle, uh, stop being angry without putting on gentleness or kindness or tenderheartedness or forgiveness. They tried to stop lying without being a teller of the truth. And the Bible says, as Christians, we don't break habits. That's what unbelievers do. We replace sinful habits with their biblical alternatives. Right? Wherefore, putting away falsehood, speak, same chapter, by the way, Ephesians 4, right? Sp putting away, see how much good stuff there is in this chapter? Putting away falsehood, speak every man the truth with his neighbor. When is a thief no longer a thief? When he stops stealing? No, he's just a thief between jobs. He'll steal again. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands that which is good that he may give to him who has need. A thief is no longer a thief when he not just stops lying, uh, thievery, stealing, but when he replaces the stealing with generosity and diligence. So every once in a while, I'll ask the question, what have you done? You say you've done it God's way and it didn't work. Well, I've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. You did A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P and it didn't work? That's right. Well, how long did you do it for? I mean, how long did you try to be, you know, a, a, an understanding husband or a submissive wife or, you know, show respect to your parents or whatever it happens to be? Oh, about two and a half weeks. At which point I quote them, Hebrews 10:36. You have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, not while you've done it for a week or two or a month or two, but after you have done the will of God day in and day out for as long as it takes for the change to stick, you will receive 
the promise. People are just so willing to throw in the towel on their relationships. They're, they're, they're not, you know, we live in a society where there's instant everything. Instant food, instant television, instant entertainment. And, you know, there's no such thing as instant sanctification. There's no such thing as instant intimacy between a husband and wife. You have got to work at it and it takes time to develop. You have need of endurance. Endurance is something we don't hear much of today, but it's a very biblical concept. Now, is there a difference between endurance and patience? Well, there are different words in the Greek for these terms, but of the two main words, when, the word, when you see the word patience in, um, in the Bible, typically it has to do with people. You're patient with people. When you see the word endurance in the Bible, typically the context is a trial. You endure trials. Now, you hardly ever see the word endurance, or even patience for that matter, uh, apart from the context of some kind of trial. If you'd stop and think about some of those questions, most of the questions or the statements I read, they really are mini trials. Not big trials. Sometimes we do better at the big trials than the little trial. But I mean, it's the little trials that get us in in trouble sometimes, right? Somebody's in front of us, you know, at, at red light, lollygag, and the light turns green, and he's sitting there talking on the phone or doing something else, and you honk the horn, and anyway, by the time he moves through, the light's red again. You know, it's a little trial, but you have to be patient as a Christian in situations like that. All right, so once again, let's take a look at our... Um, at our definitions. One, patience is the ability to accept a difficult situation from the Lord without accusing him of wrongdoing or giving him a deadline to remove it. I dare say the things that most often tempt us to impatience are life's little trials. And as I said, you hardly ever find patience or endurance apart from the context of some trial. James commends Job to us as an example of patience during trials. Notice how many times the word patience and endurance occurs in this passage. I thought I put them in italics. Well, you can just see if you can spot them. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets its early and latter rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering, there's the context, and patience, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Now, do you remember Job, that perfect and upright man who eschewed evil and feared God? How did he respond when he was tried? You remember he lost everything, right? Except his contentious wife. Then Job arose, tore his clothes, shaved his head, bowed down on the ground, and worshipped, 
and said, Naked came I from the womb, naked shall I return from whence I came. The Lord has given, the Lord, the Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, do you interpret your trials the way Job did? Job didn't look at the primary causes. He looked at the secondary causes. He didn't look at the secondary causes, rather he looked at the primary causes. What I mean by that, he didn't, he didn't say it was the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans or the fire that fell from heaven or the wind that came from the east. He knew it was the Lord and he worshipped God for his sovereignty and believed in God for his goodness. You know, those of us who are reformed, we don't usually have a problem with God's sovereignty. It's God's goodness that we tend to question when we are in trials. So what was the outcome of the Lord's dealing? How was he full of compassion? How was the Lord full of compassion and merciful to Job? When we look at Job's life, we're tempted to think, you know, that Job had a horrible life and his life was just one big mess. But if you zoom out and look at the whole thing, that's not really a fair assessment, okay? Job, before his trial, was remarkably blessed. And then after his trial, God gave him twice as much as he had of everything but his children because, you know, presumably he knew his children were in heaven and he still had them. They weren't totally taken away from him. But the Lord blessed Job. Now, in 1 Corinthians 2, in verse 9, we find a very familiar but often misrepresented or misinterpreted passage of Scripture. But it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, the misinterpretation of this verse has to do with thinking that this passage has to do with what awaits us in heaven. That's not what this is about. This passage is talking about not the great by and by, but the nasty now and now. It has to do with Paul is quoting Isaiah to make the point that only those who love God and have the Spirit of God to teach them can truly understand spiritual truth. It cannot, in other words, be understood through mere intellectual pursuit or empirical study through the eyes or through the ears. But the one thing that I want you to notice about this passage is that the Holy Spirit, through Paul's pen, changed the wording from the original. I'm going to show you what the original says. It's found in Isaiah 64, verse 4. And as I read this, I want you to see if you can figure out how Paul under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, changed the text. Here's the original. For from the days of old, they have not heard, nor perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you, who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. There's the revised version. There's the original. What happened? Look at the last line. Look at the last phrase. Which God hath prepared for those who love him, who acts in behalf of the God, of the one, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. One's on one side of the cross and one's on the other. All right, one's on one side of the cross and one's on the other. In other words, uh, before the cross, they had to wait for the Messiah because he had yet to come. On the other side of the cross, he had come, and so Paul uses a different word. But don't miss the point. To love God 
is to wait for him. We have to be patient with God's dealings with us. What's the first thing on the list in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Exactly. Now, what does all of this have to do with resolving relationships? We often have conflicts um, with trying individuals, with those who regularly cause us some amount of misery. And it's with these troubling individuals that we must exercise great patience. Remember those two verses I put up on the board this morning about instructing with patience, right? Well, that's the idea here. The Greek word used in Ephesians 4.2 for patience is macrothumia. Some argue that when the word macrothumia is used, it's used to indicate patience in respect to persons while the word endurance, hupomone, connotes patience in or putting up with things or circumstances. So, when you find yourself tempted to be impatient, do you tend to be more impatient with people or more impatient with circumstances? <laughs> Technically, when you're impatient with circumstances, you are impatient with people. You're impatient with one person in particular. Who are you impatient with? God. He's a person too, right? Now, how many, how many church leaders do we have here? How many people are? Three? Okay. All right. I want to talk to you guys for a second. Because as church leaders, you must especially be patient for you will regularly have to deal with difficult people as a part of your calling. Let's consider a few of the verses that especially are applicable to you. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We looked at this one before. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the acknowledgement of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The Lord's, I'm sorry, and then the one we looked at before also, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths but you be sober in all things endure hardship do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry so when I am counseling people and I'm trying to determine how impatient they are, I tend to look for two attitudes. The first is an unwillingness to work any longer on the relationship. Now, I mean, think about marriage. People just want to throw the towel in too quickly. They want to throw the towel in too quickly on their, pe their friends at church, or maybe people at work. They want to throw the towel in too quickly on their marriage. And, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is marriage is a very hard thing to get out of without sinning. Right? It's supposed to be a permanent thing. 
But impatient people are also too quick to throw in the towel on friendships and even on family relationships that are different. And they ask me, well, how long do I need to wait before I throw in the towel on someone? Patient people are committed to handling those difficult people biblically. They're willing to go the second and sometimes even the third mile with them. Of course, there may be times when there really is little else that can be done to move forward. If you really have made every effort as much as depends on you live at peace with all men and can't succeed, it may be wise to go to back off the relationship biblically, making it clear to the other person that the relationship is changing, not because the counselee is throwing, or not because you're throwing in the towel, but because the person with whom you're in conflict is not willing to play by God's rules. And in some cases, if people are unwilling to repent of habitual sin, church discipline may be in order. Now, the second attitude that lets me know that I'm dealing with an impatient person is one that unduly pressures or even demands that a loved one change according to his own subjective schedule. And this is really important to consider in marriage. I mean, I know, guys, you have an agenda for your wife's sanctification. And ladies, I'm sure you have an agenda for your husband's. And, you know, we should listen to each other uh, because, you know, God uses our spouses in the sanctification process. But we have to be careful that we don't superimpose our agenda over the Holy Spirit's agenda. And it just may be that the thing you want your husband to work on or your wife to work on, as important as it is and as much as the Lord may want him to work on that, he may have a bigger fish to fry. There may be other things that the Lord wants him to change first before he gets the thing that you want him to change. Same thing with your wife. As I sometimes tell my counselees, if the Lord were to show you all of your remaining sin in one moment and told you that you had until the end of next week to get things together, how would you like it? So superimposing our agenda for another person's sanctification over that of the Holy Spirit is not only a manifestation of impatience, it's really the epitome of spiritual arrogance. Second, Patience is the ability, while experiencing physical or mental pain, to keep one's emotions, grief, fear, anger, for example, from developing into sinful thoughts, words, attitudes, or actions, especially towards God and others. Now, we used Job as an illustration before, but... Job also serves as an illustration for something else. And that is, it's easier for us to sin. It's harder for us to obey God when we're physically afflicted, when we're ill, when we're tired. Now, we can't use that as an excuse, but you remember what happens at the beginning of chapter 1? The devil comes before the Lord again, and, you know, as in the first chapter, the Lord picks the fight. I mean, read it carefully. Hey, what do you think about Job? Not bad, huh? And then the second chapter, the devil says, yeah, well, no wonder, you know, you have this hedge about him. You let me touch him physically and he'll curse you through your face. And the Lord says, well, have at it. The only thing is you can't kill him. At the end of the day, Job doesn't end up cursing God, but he does start developing uh, a less than godly attitude about it. He does start questioning God. In fact, at the end of the book, towards the end of the book, 
after Job's three terrible counselor friends, you know, gave him some very un- unmerciful and unbiblical advice, his fourth friend, Elihu, comes along and he nails him. He says, Job, your problem is you're justifying yourself before God. You're justifying yourself rather than God. And so the point is, just like Elijah, who after the humiliation of the prophets at Baal, ran ahead of the chariot and was physically exhausted, apparently was hungry and in need of sleep, it was easy for him to become suicidal and and depressed. Physical illness, being tired, makes it easier for us to sin. And we have to recognize that as people. Not so that we can use it as as an excuse, but so that as Christians we can make sure we take the proper precautions and make sure that we are uh, being a good um, steward of the body that God has given us, that we're resting enough, that we're eating properly, all of that. So, he handles the initial part of his trial amazingly well. Then his thoughts and his words about God begin to change. Perhaps the most obvious characteristic about individuals who don't suffer well is that they complain about their circumstances, often putting the worst interpretation on them. Do I have these on the file? No. Um, Let me just read some from the book of Job. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dread has happened to me. And of course most of Job's dealings, complainings, were directed against God. Does this seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and that no eye had seen me. (coughs) Um, As as water wears away stone, as torrents wash the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. If I called and God answered me, I would not believe that he's listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my words without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. Another indication of Job's anger at God is his defiant demand that God explains why he did certain things. Now, it's fine for us to ask God why, but we have to do it in the right posture. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then have you brought me out of the womb? And I love, again, what Elihu says to Job at one point. This is in chapter 33, verse 13. Listen to this. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account for all his doings? You can ask God why, but God is not obligated to tell you why. And not only that, but if God explained to you why, why, you might not like it. You know, maybe from the earthly perspective, it might not make sense to you. You may not like, like it. Usually, when we go through trials, as time goes on, we understand why God put us through the trial. But more often than not, at the moment, we can't see it. I mean, we can take it by faith. When we go through a trial, we know that certain things are operative, right? We know, for example, that God causes all things to work together for our good. And what is that, according to verse 29 of Romans 8? That we might be conformed to the image of his son, right? 
Um, we know that God uses trial to increase our faith. We know that God uses trial to prepare us for ministry. Blessed be the Father of mercies. The word there, by the way, is a form of the word parakaleo, paraclete, the helper. You could translate it this way. The Father of mercies and God of all assistance, who assists us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to assist those who are in any trouble with the same assistance that we have received from God. And so we know one of the things that God is up to is that he's teaching us, he's, he's enabling us to minister God's grace to counsel people, in other words, in the future. I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting there talking to people and, um, you know, the, the stuff's coming out of my mouth that I never said to anybody before and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, you know, now I know why I had to go through that trial. You know, I didn't understand until years later. That wasn't the only reason I went through the trial, but one of the reasons is so that God will use us to help others who are in the same trouble the same kind of trouble. No, that's not what it says, actually. It says those who are in any trouble with the same assistance. So God helps you through a, a drug problem. You can help those who are in any trouble. You might be able to use what you learned there and help somebody with a marriage problem or with an anger problem with any trouble with the same assistance that we have received from God. But this is a conference on conflict resolution. So what does all this stuff have to do with resolving conflicts? Let's talk for a moment about how impatience generated by unchecked emotions can manifest itself into sinful words, attitudes, or actions towards others. Communication issues associated with impatience. Well, before I give these to you, you tell me, what do you think? In what ways do you think, if you're impatient, it messes up your ability to resolve conflicts? Okay. You get angry and then you what? You get angry, more, more easily angered, right? Uh, you don't listen. My wife, used to, my wife used to have this way of reminding me of <clears throat> Proverbs 18.2. You know what that says? A fool has no delight in understanding, but only in giving his own opinion. So she wouldn't, she wouldn't quote the verse verbatim to me, but she said, she said to me, Lou, are you really interested in understanding my perspective, or do you just want me to understand yours? A fool has no delight in understanding, but only in giving his own opinion. Occupational hazard of being a counselor. You know, you interrupt people, you want to try to get to the, to the issue as quickly as possible. All right, well, how about some of these? Interrupting others when they're speaking. Not waiting until others have finished expressing their thoughts before I express mine. Jumping to hasty and unfounded conclusions. Not waiting until I've collected all of the necessary information to come to a biblical conclusion. Um, you know... We sometimes say when somebody has an anger problem, this is a piece of TNT, right? We say that when someone has an anger problem, he has a what? A short fuse. Okay. 
But if a person is impatient, and if a person has a tendency to make snap judgments and to, to render a verdict before he collects all of the information, you know, another verse in um, Proverbs 18, uh, verse 13, he who answers a matter before he hears it is folly and shame unto him. Then our fuse is even shorter because basically what we do, if we are impatient and don't collect all of the information necessary to make a wise biblical decision, like Jesus said, um, don't judge according to the appearance of the eyes, but judge with righteous judgment. What we end up doing is we light the fuse here and make the fuse even shorter. So, we're out in the woods and we hear something in the bushes and we take our rifle, we're up in a tree stand. And then, before we wait and see if it's a deer or a person, we start taking some shots. I mean, is that what we do? God forbid, right? Well, that's what we do sometimes when it comes to making snap judgments. We pull the, we hear something on the other side of the woods, we, we pull the pin out of the grenade, and we throw it before we determine whether it's a friend or a foe. And so it does, when we're impatient, it tends to help us, uh, tempt us to pull the pin out of the grenade way too soon. Um, judging motives, not waiting until I've asked others what their real motives are before I accuse them of having improper ones. One of the biggest communication problems that we have to deal with in counseling is this problem of judging motives. And the Bible's clear. If I do something wrong and you see it, or I say something wrong and you hear it, you can judge me for that. But what you may not do is judge my thoughts and my motives. What's it say in 1 Corinthians uh, 5 and verse 4, or is it 4 and verse 5? Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things in dark of darkness and make manifest the motives of the heart. We're not to judge things about which we have insufficient evidence, but wait until the Lord comes. And we're not to judge the thoughts and motives of another person's heart. Now, if we have a suspicion about something, we can ask the person about their motives. I have to do this as a counselor all the time. Listen, do you remember what your motive was? Could it be that when you said this, this was your motive? And we have them look inside their own heart, and if they can verify for us that that's what their motive was, okay. Then if they don't recognize it, we can convict them and show them that that was not a good motive. But if you're impatient, you're not going to take the time to ask. You're going to see even a look on somebody's countenance, and you're going to say, he's angry at me, when that's not the case. You know, or he's afraid, or he's, you know, you can't, listen, I've trained myself, I've learned as a counselor to read body language. You know, I can often tell when someone's lying to me, I can tell when someone's afraid. I can read people's faces and their countenances, but I, I cannot take that to the bank. I have to take what I see in their face and ask them questions. Listen, you seem to be worried about something. Could you explain what that look on your face is all about? I've got to get them to verify it because I cannot read their minds and I certainly cannot judge by their countenance exactly what is going on in their mind. I need verification. Demanding immediate answers to difficult questions. Not waiting until those I question have sufficient time to consider their response. Pressuring people to quickly finish what they're saying. Not waiting until others have finished expressing their thoughts before I express mine. Oh, you're going to love this next one. Finishing others' sentences. 
not waiting until others have finished expressing their thoughts before I express mine. And how about this one? Taking vengeance verbally, not waiting for God to execute his justice in his time. When we, when we say something vindictively in a retaliatory way that's, that's sinful, it's really being impatient. If you, if you look at Romans chapter 12, where it says not that we shouldn't execute our own vengeance, right? Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will pay, says the Lord. If your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, and all that. Ultimately, vengeance is impatience with God because God promises that he will right all wrongs. Ultimately, he's going to take care of it. And when we execute our own vengeance, we're really being impatient with God. I don't want to wait until God zaps this guy. He deserves to be zapped now, and I'm going to zap him. So, these are subtle ways in which our impatience messes up our ability to resolve conflicts and communicate. Alright, now the next three definitions um, are really sort of related they're sort of um, subsets of the previous one. But number three, patience is the ability to endure tribulation without resorting to any sinful means of deliverance. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, David is being pursued by Saul. So let me read some of this for you. This is 1 Samuel 24. Now it came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines that he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rock of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds of the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Then David arose, cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. When you're in trials, um, don't be surprised if other Christians come along and give you very ungodly counsel and encourage you to extricate yourself from the trial using sinful means of deliverance. Although he was tempted to do so, David didn't use sinful means to deliver himself from Saul. Impatient people are all, always or often on the prowl for something, anything that will bring them relief. Divorce, suicide, rebellion, gossip, manipulation, running away, or simply neglecting personal responsibilities. Sometimes when we are in a trial, we can feel as though God has put us in a box 
and that the, the box is getting smaller and smaller. It's kind of closing in around us. And it's very important that we understand what the Bible says about the, the box that we're in when he puts us in it, when we, when we face a trial. In 2 Corinthians 10 and 13, it says, and I want to make clear, this principle, of course, only applies to Christians. Unbelievers don't have this promise. There's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such as is common to man. There may be some unique elements of the trial that you're going through, but basically many other Christians have gone through the same kind of a trial. But then he says this, God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will make a way to escape that you will be able to endure it. Here's the endurance word again. Okay, so for the Christian, when we're in a trial, we're in a box, even though it feels like the box is, is crowding in on us, we know two things about that box, that God has limited in scope. It's not going to be more than we can handle. He, he's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond the grace that he's going to give you, beyond your ability. And then secondly, he promises he's going to limit it in duration. Someday, some way, he promises to let you get out of the box. Doesn't say how. <clears throat> he may push a button and the box will disappear. Or push another button and a trap door will open up and you'll slide out at the bottom. Or he'll send some angels, uh, angels to you know, march around the box seven times at the end of which they'll shout and the walls will come down like the walls of Jericho. Or he'll snap his fingers and the box will... I don't know how he's going to do it, but he promises that someday, some way, <clears throat> he's going to get you out of the box. Now, in some cases, it may not be till we get to heaven... But in most cases, that's not the case. I would have fainted unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so the question to ask ourselves is, am I going to patiently wait for God to get me out of this box? Or am I going to impatiently pull out my sinful little pocket knife an attempt to tow my way out of the box before God, through righteous means, extricates me <clears throat> in his own way. Do you remember that illustration we used before? Honey, we're lost. No, I know exactly where we are. Back and forth, back and forth. Well, <clears throat> sometimes anger, as we said, can be what breaks the circuit. But sometimes it can also be impatience. You know, we just don't want to invest the time and the effort or the whatever to continue the conversation. And if that happens, once again, there's no resolution to the conflict. So it could be anger. It could be fear could be impatience. There are lots of things that could really break the circuit and short-circuit our ability to communicate. All right. Common issues associated with impatience. Prematurely terminating conflicts due to an unwillingness to tolerate sinful attitudes of your opponent. Think about that. Prematurely terminating conflicts due to an unwillingness to tolerate the sinful attitudes of your opponents. Impatient thoughts that short-circuit conflict resolution. 
Now think about how you think when you're in conflict. I don't have to tolerate this any longer. Ever said that? He can't say that to me. I'm done here. How dare she talk to me in that way? He's not listening to reason, so why invest any more of my time? I don't have any more time to argue with her. I've got more important things to do. He's only interested in expressing his own opinion. He's a fool, so I'm not going to argue with him anymore. There's no hope. She'll never admit that she's wrong. God's going to have to show him I'm tired of trying. Who said this? I beg you, listen to me patiently. The Apostle Paul to King Agrippa in Acts 23. Listen to me patiently. Do you see how patience is so caught up in our ability to resolve conflicts and how impatience just torpedoes the thing? Patient thoughts that encourage conflict resolution. I'm going to give this conflict at least two or three more rounds. Give another round or two. There's got to be a way to help him see things differently. You know, I went in the, I went in the back, the front door didn't work, I went in the back door, it didn't work. Maybe there's a side window I can go through. God has been patient with my sin, I'm going to be patient with him. Just because his attitude stinks doesn't mean his reasoning is wrong. Can anybody think of a bi biblical example of that? Somebody who had a really bad attitude? Remember when David um, was, when Shimei was cursing David? Right? I, I mean, David said, let him curse. The Lord has bidden him to curse. Even though Shimei had a bad attitude, he was willing to see, try to see the, the excuse me, the, cur the curse as coming from the Lord. Just because you're a reprover, just because your wife, just because your husband has character flaws of her own or has a bad, uh, it communicates the reproof in a sinful way doesn't mean you shouldn't consider it. doesn't let you off the hook. You need to take the essence of the, of the reproof, bad attitude notwithstanding, back to the scriptures to see if there's any truth to it. And if there's truth to it, you need to take the hit for it and own it and confess it and forsake it. God calls me to use great patience when I am in conflict. Lord, help me to know how much longer to stay in this fight and how and when to terminate it politely and how to give him a warning before I do so. Do you remember the book of, um, well, in the, in, the, in the book of Revelation, when the Lord was dealing with some of the, the churches there? It says in one or two places, I gave them space to repent. I mean, God does give his people a warning before he puts the kibosh on them. And sometimes when you're in a conflict with a person, it's good, you know, not just to abruptly leave, but to at least give them one a warning before you're going to, you know, terminate things. And again, you should try to give the other person a rain check and not to just impatiently exit stage right. All right, patience is the ability to continue in suffering 
and be thankful for God's sovereignty, justice, wisdom, and love. Throughout the account, Job never questioned God's sovereignty over his circumstances. He didn't focus on secondary causes like the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans or the fire that fell from heaven. Rather, he attributed everything to the decretive will of God. He apparently knew that God had sovereignty over the trial. Have you ever gone through a trial and there was just like nothing you could think of that you could praise God for? I mean, there was nothing in the circumstance for which you could be thankful. Yet we're instructed to give thanks in every situation, in everything give thanks. There's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I will bless the Lord at all times. Well, during such times, as difficult as it may be, we can praise God for who He is. Patience is required to see what God is up to and how He's going to work our trials together for our good. When facing trials, one of the most profitable things we can do is spend extra time studying God's perfections. I would have fainted, I would have despaired, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He who comes to God must believe not only that he is, but that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now again, you ask, okay, I get this, but you know, this is really good stuff, I have trials, but what does it have to do with my conflict resolution? Well, let me ask you something. Do you lose sight of God's perfections when you are in conflict? If so, you're going to be more likely to lose your cool <clears throat> rather than patiently endure the conflict. If you really believe these things about God and acted on them or acted out of an, assur an abiding assurance of them, wouldn't you be much less likely to resort to unbiblical means of communication in your attempts to resolve matters? Wouldn't you have a certain calmness, if not winsomeness, that would make your arguments even more persuasive? Wouldn't it be easier for you to trust God for the outcome even if the other person was unwilling to play by God's rules. Sometimes we're so focused on the conflict and wanting to win and what the other person has done that we lose sight of the fact that God is still in control and he's got a purpose for this thing. And we have to not get sidestepped from uh, distracted by the conflict to such an extent <clears throat> that it causes us to forget who we're working for, you know, who's owned us, who's giving us orders, who's even giving us the ability and the desire and the instruction to have the conflict in the first place. Patience is the ability to keep a biblical perspective about one's troubles by not magnifying a tolerable trial so that it appears to one's mind as an intolerable one. Patience is a mindset. It's a matter of how one interprets life, of how one views reality. Consider the characteristic of the first contemplation in Philippians 4.8. It says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, you know, honorable, whatever's right. To think about things that are true is in part to think about that which conforms to reality, held over against that which is a fantasy. Our minds can sometimes magnify the misery of our trials way beyond reality. 
There are even some examples of people in the Bible who magnified tolerable trials so that they appeared to their mind as intolerable ones. Can you think of some of those examples? Biblical examples of those who magnified tolerable trials so that they appeared to their mind as intolerable ones. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Now when Rachel saw, saw that she bore no, Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I die. So Moses said to the Lord, Why hast thou been so hard on thy servant? Why, hast thou not, why have I not found favor in thy sight that thou hast laid the burden of these people on me? Then the Israelites said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken me. I have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thy altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And it came about, when the sun came up, that God appointed a scorching wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. And God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to the point of death. Like the Israelites whose impatience in the wilderness tempted them to sarcastically complain against Moses and against God, impatience tempts us to similarly, uh, I'm sorry, impatience tempts us to similar verbal and attitudinal sins by exaggerating the scope and intensity of our trials. Such exaggerations can magnify the issues of our conflicts way beyond that which conforms to reality, especially God's reality. Patient people train their minds not to perceive a pinprick as though they had been mortally wounded. Consequently, they do not utilize nuclear tactics, sinful tactics, when conventional, biblical ones will do just fine. Somebody want to take a picture? I'm trying to be patient. <laughs> Actually, I'm trying to hurry through for, for your perspective. Yeah. His attributes. When I say the perfections of God, when theologians talk of the perfections, what they mean is attributes. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay. Okay. Patience, finally, is the ability to obtain and rejoice in the assurance that one's present distress will produce godly character, which is of great value not only in this life, but also in the next. And we've got all kinds of scriptures to remind us of this. Consider it all joy. Not if, but when you endure various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Bodily discipline is only of little profit, 
But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far above all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And we already quoted First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. <clears throat> and then only this. But we also exalt in tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, perseverance proven character, proven character hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is, and hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Most of the conflicts we find ourselves embroiled in are over things of little eternal significance. I mean, <laughs> you just don't know how many times in any given week someone will say to me, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this because at the end of the day, it's such a small thing, but we had a 30-minute conflict about this. Who squeezed the toothpaste tube in the middle? We've got to leave the <clears throat> put the toilet seat down or you know, something. In the total scheme of things, the things that we get in conflicts over are temporal. But the character that we sacrifice is eternal. And we end up choosing, you know, to lose character and to, you know, lose eternal rewards because we're more concerned about some little temporal thing. The character, the godliness we are often willing to sacrifice in our attempts to win an argument costs us eternal and sometimes temporal rewards. Okay. Any questions? Do you think in your in your career as we get faster and faster and faster, it's, it's harder and harder and harder to be patient? Is it is, have you noticed that that the outward influence of, of I'm gonna say technology, not that that's a no. it, it's hard to, to wait. I, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, within a matter of seconds, I can be all over the world with this thing. I mean, I can get any information I want. I can talk to anybody I want to talk to, at least leave a voicemail or a text or something. I mean, yes, the culture in which we live, you know, is making it more difficult to be patient because we're not having to wait nearly as long as we had to wait before. Everything is instantaneous. Well, I <clears throat> Exactly. That's right. That's right. Get, we say we get frustrated. I'm just frustrated. Well, the problem is your body doesn't know the difference between frustrated and anger. It's really not accurate to say, I feel frustrated. You are frustrated. What you feel when you are frustrated is really anger or impatience or something. I mean, it's a sin. Yes? I have a question going way back to the anger. You said that you know, we have all these physiological responses and emotional responses. Why do you think that God created all that? You know, when it just seems like most of the time we, we get wrong. We don't have righteous anger. We have the wrong kind. So, and, but if it's not a warning system or whatever, then why? Well, I, I, I think it is. I think it is a warning system. But I mean, how boring would life be without those things? Well, yeah, I, guess. I, I mean, it, 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 it
Well, these, these things did not cause problems in the garden. I mean, after the fall, they caused problems. You know, God's initial intent, uh, um, they were there, and they had, they had different purposes, and there was no way they could be corrupted by sin. So I've never really thought about that, but that would be a great thing to spend some time thinking about, you know, in the garden, what was the value of anger? What was the, when, when was it useful? What about jealousy and hatred? I mean, to what extent, you know, did those things have value? That's really something to think about. Which is a very nice way to say, I'm not sure how to answer your question, but it's a good question. Yes? I think you alluded to this earlier. When you're working with a spouse, child, fellow church body member, mm-hmm. another believer, mm-hmm. or somebody that's outside the church body, whatever, but um, a little guidance again on like, how long are you patient? How long do you invest in resolving the conflict, the relationship, mm-hmm. and then and part of that may be just it's not necessarily the length it may be how do you step away from it when it's appropriate but that also gets back to is recognizing I guess defining and recognize that you have a fool you're dealing with and you should not so and there, are th- th- there are like three different questions there absolutely um, <laughs> yeah alright well f- first of all as far as you know how long do you do you are you patient with someone who's sinning? Um, Jay Adams and I, for many years, for close to 20 years, would have a yearly fishing trip. And I would save up all my counseling questions and my theological questions, and I would just pick his brain on the boat, you know, for three, four hours. We had a great time. And um, one day, I, I asked him this question about, uh, you know, patience. How long do you, you, as an elder, do you deal with people? And what he said as a rule of thumb, I thought made a lot of sense. He says, you figure out how much time it it should take. You know, you assess the person, figure out about how much time it should take for him to change, given all the circumstances you know. He said, then double it. And if after that point in time, things are not changing, then it may be time to move to the next level. If you have to err, it's always better to err on the side of patience. It's always, well, I shouldn't say, it's always it's complicated. It's, as a rule, it's always safer to err on the side of mercy than the side of judgment, on the side of patience than the side of impatience. The thing that makes it difficult as an elder is when you are patient with the perpetrator and, and you want to be merciful to him and give him every opportunity to repent before you pull the trigger, you are necessarily extending the misery of his family members that he's got to live with. And so while you're being merciful to him, you could be very easily being unmerciful to the family members. And it's a very, very difficult situation. And that's why I think God gave us elders, you know. And it's like Jesus said in Matthew 18, as elders, we have the, the responsibility to make those judgments, not unilaterally, but as a, as a, as a body. You know, whatever we bind on heaven, uh, whatever we bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever we loose on earth shall have been loosed on earth. I think we have to make those judgment calls the best we can as a session based on biblical uh, the biblical principles of justice that he's given us. Okay, so that was one question. Give me that two again. Well, I want to think I'm against myself because back to depending on who the relationship is. Yeah. You know, spouses, if you get the point can't resolve something and you're leading to divorce, I mean, that disengagement is riddled with sin mm-hmm. versus I have a conflict at work with an employer. I mean, I can disengage by resigning. Yeah. I can disengage from a business deal. Right. So, I mean, and if it's a church member, because it's a church system, so I guess my answer to my question is, depending on the relationship that we're called to be from a political perspective, 
Yeah. Some of those require much more and get much more patience. And that's right. Where we can disengage. I came back around to, but when you're dealing with a fool and defining who the fool is, and do where do I go with that? Okay, so as far as the fool, you know, here's the way I look at that. You know, in, in the book of Proverbs, you have all this instruction about basically, you know, warning a fool and getting out of the way and letting God spank him, you know. Different kinds of fools, but, you know, basically, you, you don't want to tangle with a fool. You want to warn him and get out of the way and, you know, those kinds of things. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool. All these different verses. But the way I see it, we have the book of Proverbs, which gives us principles. The book of Proverbs are really truisms. They're, they're principles, they're not directives. In the New Testament, we have directives. If the quote-unquote fool is a professing believer and he's a member of a Bible-believing church, we have to take the, the, the directive to follow Matthew 18, Luke 17, Galatians 6.1. These directives, these imperatives, injunctions, trump the principles. So it's like in 1 Corinthians 5, if any so-called brother is a fornicator or whatever, you know, you deal with him this way, you have doubts as to whether he's a Christian, but he's a member of the church, he professes Christ, you've got to deal with him like a believer. You just can't um, withdraw from a professing believer, quote-unquote fool, um, because he's a fool. You have to biblically try to pursue him. And so that's the way I look at it. The New Testament imperatives trump the Old Testament principles.